Welcome to Exchange Church, where we desire to connect and grow people in Jesus. Thanks for listening to our Bible message today, and feel free to share it around. We finished a sermon series on Galatians uh, last week and, and uh, starting a new series today through the book of Daniel. So I'm uh, going to work through not all of that book. We're going to do the, probably the first half of the book of Daniel. There's some great uh, stuff there for us to see in God's um, plan of salvation and God's uh, story of his glory. So just to set the scene, we will give some context for Daniel in a moment though, but just to set the scene for where Daniel's going to take us today. Tell me, uh, what do you do when you're in a situation of compromise? Could be a workplace scenario where your team wants to change the records to make the reports look accurate and good. Uh, You're a follower of Christ, you know it's a lie, but you also know they'll probably never ever get caught because the whole team is together on this. What are you going to do? You've got some really deep convictions to remain truthful here, but the whole team wants to go in this direction. You feel this tension here of compromise. What will I do? Which way will I go? The people around me are all in, and they feel no qualms about it. But I've got this tension of compromise happening within me. Will I honour the Lord by being truthful, or will I just go with the team and falsify the records? Well, we're going to look at that today, not that particular scenario, but compromise in the book of Daniel. So if you've got your Bibles there, please uh, go to Daniel chapter 1, dot through the first seven verses. I'm going to pick up the next um, 8 to 16, but I would encourage you each week as we send the email out, read the whole reading because that really does help dial you in um, for where we're going. Next week is, a, is chapter 2, which is a really big chapter. We're not going to read it out, so just read that beforehand. helps you understand um, where we're going to go. So Daniel chapter 1, I'm going to read 8 through to 16. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favour and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink, and then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Lord, thank you. Thank you as we come and uh, open up this uh, precious book that you've given to us, the book of Daniel. We ask and pray, Holy Spirit, today as we just begin to um, mine our way through the truth that is here, you would help us to see the big picture of what God is doing uh, in his world, in his universe. So we won't see this book in isolation from the rest of the Bible, but we'll see this book as another key uh, chapter in the whole of the Bible, we pray. Help us today as we think about compromise and where Daniel is and what he's going through. Let us see great things that will honour and glorify you, we ask. 
Uh, Holy Spirit, help us to honour and glorify Christ through what we see. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, and that is really, really important for us, um, that we see the Bible as one grand narrative. Starting in Genesis 1 and going right through to Revelation 22. It's, the Bible isn't some random collection of books or collection of writings over thousands of years that are all somehow disconnected. Okay, It's not like the book of Daniel was a bestseller from the New York bestseller list in 600 BC, even though New York wasn't there at that particular time, but it wasn't from the bestseller list. Right, let's put that in the collection. That's not how the Bible is. Not at all. Uh, the Bible is a cohesive unit of God speaking to us, revealing himself through his word, his inspired word, this grand story of his glory overarching from Genesis 1 right through to Revelation 22. It's one picture. It's one book with lots of chapters, in it, as it were, inside the book. It's also an unfolding story of God's glory. Starts in Genesis 1 and it actually just keeps unfolding and showing us more and more as we keep working through the Bible. We see there that God chooses a person. Well, we go right back to start and God creates Adam and Eve. But then ultimately in the story of redemption, God chooses a person in Abraham to become the father of the nation of Israel, of whom the Saviour will be born as a king. We then see this nation, God's chosen nation with Abraham as the father, go through all manner of challenges and difficulties throughout life. We see that nation walk away from God that God has chosen despite all the good things that God's done to them and despite all the blessings and warnings that God's given to this nation as well. This nation walks away from God and goes their own way. And this is where we start to see the book of Daniel fit in. God's nation now, which is around 2,000 years old, getting towards Daniel's time, uh, it's a kingdom that's gone through a major division. Start off as one nation, but then shortly after King Solomon, we had King Saul, King David, then King Solomon, shortly after King Solomon, under God's sovereignty, the nation divides. Ten tribes go off and they become the northern kingdom called Israel. And at the same time, uh, another tribe, the tribe of Judah, becomes the southern tribe. And they carry the name of Judah. Uh, Jerry, you can put up that uh, image for us. Let's give a bit of a picture there. In that northern part towards Assyria um, is where the northern tribes are. And down towards that black arrow is the southern part where Judah is. And what we actually see here is that both kingdoms go through a range of different kings over this time period. Some really, really good kings and some really, really bad kings. Ultimately, both kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the ten tribes in the northern kingdom and the one tribe in the southern kingdom, um, don't heed God's warnings. Don't listen to the prophets that God sends them. Don't hear God's word. Reject it. Refuse to follow it. God's judgment now is to allow both of these kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, to fall into enemy's hands. So the northern kingdom up there, I can put that image back up, thanks, Jerry. Assyria at the top invades and crushes the northern kingdom and ten tribes. Around 720 BC, uh, they are sacked and burned. They just raise uh, the term for just destroying uh, the city of um, Samaria where they had their, their false temple. So that's gone in 720 BC. 
Now in Daniel, we pick it up a little bit further because he's in the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom of Judah is captured now by the Babylonians. What the Babylonians do, as you can see across there, in Babylonia is Iraq in today's modern terms, if you have pulled out an atlas. Babylon goes and destroys Assyria and then they come down to take out the southern kingdom as well at the same time. So there they, they are the world's superpower around 605 BC thereabouts. And they too do the same thing. Roughly 100 years after the northern kingdom's gone, the southern kingdom, under God's judgment, because of the rebellion before God, they're taken out as well. It's reduced to rubble. They just come in and they just trash the whole place. Now you might think, is that just historical data from the Bible? Now you can actually go to museums and other places around the world and they will testify to that exact same history taking place as well. It just correlates directly with what the Bible says. These are, these are real things that happened. So what we have then with Daniel here, it's around 600-ish BC. Daniel with King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the, was the victorious king of Babylon. He's just completed this full invasion of Jerusalem and he's taken control of all of Judah, its king, its land and its people. That sets the scene somewhat for us here where Daniel fits into the, the grand narrative here of the Bible. What God is going to do, he's going to use Daniel as an example of faithfulness to the Lord in the context here of defeat and doom and despair. And we'll look at this a bit in a moment here of what they actually went through. So here's where we're going to head today as we just open up this first chapter of Daniel. God blesses and rewards our faithfulness to him when we actually face the heat of an opposing and godless culture. God blesses that as we stand in faithfulness before him, resolved in him, in the face of the heat of an opposing and godless culture. Let's jump in here then. The first few verses in Daniel 1 are really important for us to understand the context again of where Judah is at this particular time. It's both sad, but it's also enlightening for us as well. Judah's crushed. And many of its people have been taken away in exile. This is the exile where the kingdoms are now taken off to the invading captives uh, to their, back to their nation. And what Daniel is trying to do here for us is set the scene, and the scene really is pretty ugly. It's devastating. Now, Judah was a nation chosen by God, but that nation has become proud. They've gone their own way, done their own thing. And unfortunately, their pride just turned into outright arrogance, pride that they were God's chosen people, but never once followed God truly to the letter of um, what God asked them to do. Everything they had had come from God. Every blessing they had had come from God. They knew God's blessing and favour over centuries, not just a few years, but over hundreds of years. They had the glorious temple in Jerusalem as well, which was sort of signified the presence of God. We've got the one true God here in our temple in Jerusalem. They had everything. But here's the scene now as we open up these first few verses in uh, Daniel. They've just witnessed violent aggressors ruthlessly invade and crush the city, crush the kingdom, crush its people. And a number of them now, including Daniel, are on this long march from where we saw before from Jerusalem back across now to the foreign city of Babylon, to the invaders who've come and crushed this country. 
It's a long march. It's over mountains and then it's across a long desert to get back to Babylon. But here's what they've just seen. Here's what they've just witnessed in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. They've seen some of their fathers and their brothers brutally murdered by the Babylonians. They've just seen some of their sisters and their mothers raped by the soldiers of Babylon. They've just witnessed and they've just seen pregnant women have their babies hacked out of their stomachs. Now you might think I'm being graphic there, but that's exactly what they would do back then. They come in like barbarians, ruthlessly destroyed these people, absolutely crushed the nations. They've also seen their once grand and beautiful temple that as the presence of God is in. It's now reduced to a pile of bricks and charcoal. That's what they've just seen. They're on this long march and they're contemplating all that in their mind. And I'm sure questions like this would have popped in their mind as well as they're walking across that desert. They're asking themselves, is he really God? Where was he when the Babylonians came and invaded our city? Maybe he's not all-powerful. Maybe he's not the true and living God. I'm sure as they were walking across the desert, they're thinking, it's defeat, it's despair, it's doom. And they're questioning, who is God? And a massive death blow here also, which takes place, is when opposing armies come in and they capture the temple of the place they've invaded, they take some of the things out of the temple and they bring it back and they place it in their temples, uh, the God of their temple. And that signifies like our God is stronger than your God and your God is now in subjection to our God because his things are in their temple and he needs to bow down to that. And we see that in verse 2 there before, they actually take things out of the temple and bring them back and place them to their temple. That's a real statement of defeat. Our God is stronger than your God. Quite probably, the majority of the population of Judah may have thought, this is it. It's over. All the promises, all the dreams, everything we thought, it's all gone up in smoke. It's dark, it's gloomy, they're defeated, and they're in despair. This begins to set the scene here for the book of Daniel as we open that up. They're asking themselves, could God possibly recover from this smoking ruin to restore the grandeur and the glory of his kingdom? It goes further. The Babylonians aren't silly. They are very, very, very shrewd conquerors. They take things further by removing the smartest and the brightest people from Judah and relocate them now back to Babylon. It's like an assimilation program that they go about. Have a look in verse 3 and 4. What they say there is they take them from the royal family, they take them from the nobility, and they also handpick also youth who are the intelligent ones, the beautiful ones or the unblemished ones. Like, you know, it's like here's the cream of the crop. We're going to take the best of the best out of Judah and we're going to bring them now back to, as it were, reprogram them. What they want to do is wipe all of their identity away from them and then reload into them a Chaldean culture and a Chaldean literature and a Chaldean... It's like a wipe and reload. We want to wipe that out and we now want to reload this back into you. Verse 4, 
It says there they teach them the Chaldean language and literature. They're going to learn all of that. They're going to be immersed in all of that. Verse 5, then they're going to be educated for three years in all the wisdom. It's like going to university and doing a degree. It's for three years we're going to just immerse you in all of the ways of the Chaldean ways. It's like assimilating them into this really comprehensive, godless culture of Babylon. And then following that we see Daniel and his three friends on this exile introduced for the very first time in verses 6 and 7. We sort of Daniel set that scene for us there. And it's like now it's the final piece, as it were, of assimilation or reprogramming that Babylonians want to do to Daniel and his friends. And here's what they do. They take their Jewish names away from them and they now give them Chaldean names. Uh, Our family had the privilege to be across in Europe a few weeks ago. We visited the Auschwitz death camp in Poland. It's the very same thing the Germans did to the Jews. When the Jews would turn up at this Auschwitz death camp, their names were taken off them and they were just given a number. You're not a person anymore, you're just a number. They're trying to strip away their identity, trying to strip away all of their culture, their heritage. It still happens. The whole idea here of doing this from the Babylonian perspective is it's to cripple the nation of Judah once and for all. We're not only just going to defeat you, we want to crush you. We want to take the smartest, the brightest, the most good looking, the beautiful people of Judah. We want to strip away all of your Jewish heritage and your Jewish culture. We want to immerse you in the Chaldean way of life. It's a bit like You will look like us, you will think like us, you will speak like us, and you'll also believe like us in the foreign gods that we serve. It's a total reprogramming of what's taking place there. Judah, you will never rise again as a nation. You're forgotten. It's all history. There's nothing there. You'll now serve the Babylonian Empire and help it dominate and rule the world. This further sets the scene for Daniel. It's not great. It's not an uplifting picture here of sort of you know, beautiful sunsets over Jerusalem. It's dark and it's gloomy. And one looking on could say, oh, it's gone. It's lost. This is not coming back. This is done and dusted. Surely God is dead. What could possibly come out of this? That's the picture we see here as we open up the first chapter of Daniel. God is not dead. And he hasn't lost either. God is utterly sovereign through the first chapter of Daniel. Despite the chaos and despite the despair, God reigns in this situation. And despite what the circumstances may say to us, God reigns in this situation. Have a look in verse 2. How did King Nebuchadnezzar overrun Judah? What does it say there? God did it. He sovereignly ordained it to happen. Who gave them into the hand of King Nebuchadnezzar? The Lord gave them into the hand of King Nebuchadnezzar. God wasn't sitting there with his hands tied behind his back. Out of control? This was God sovereignly ordaining this situation. What was it? This is God's judgment upon Judah for their persistent, 
unrepentant disobedience. They were told a number of times, you need to turn back to me, otherwise you'll be overrun. They didn't turn back, so God ordained Babylon to come and to overrun them. God is totally in control of the situation. As dark and as desperate as it seems, God is there. He's working and his plans have not gone off the rails. God's now going to work in the life of Daniel as well and his three friends to glorify himself, to bless his people amidst this pagan culture, this pagan godless culture as well. Drop down to verse 8 and we see here a really key phrase here, a description of, of Daniel that is really telling of God's work. Daniel resolved. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. That was part of this assimilation program we heard about before. He resolved. He set his heart with a determined conviction. Something just triggered within him at this particular point that he wasn't going to compromise with this pagan king at this point. Now, at this point, the issue was over the king's food given to Daniel and his three friends. Daniel says, that's it. I'm not going to eat the food. He refuses the food at this point. Now, you might be asking a question here like I did, and I did some study on it. Why does Daniel draw the line here at food? Why did he actually take the education? Because he did. He went through the three years of education. Why did he take a new name? Well, he's happy to take a new name as well. But he gets to the food, and Daniel says, no. You've crossed the line now. I'm not going to take the food. As I read about this week, the commentators found it a little bit hard exactly to know why he drew the line particularly at the food. Here's some possibilities. The meat wasn't kosher. In other words, for a Jewish belief and practice, they needed to have you know the clean meat, separated meat, kosher meat that Jews would eat. There was one thought of possibly, well, it wasn't kosher. Well, it could be. Second reason was, maybe the meat was probably used for sacrificing to idols, so therefore it was going to become part of idol worship. So Daniel drew a line and said, no, I'm, not going to, I'm not going to partake in that. It could have been that, but there's a whole range of meats coming through, so we can't exactly verify it was that, but possibly. Here's the third reason, which I think has probably more relevance uh, to where we're going and where the chapter is. And it's this, if you ate directly from the king's table, so you ate directly from the king's table, that, mean, that would mean that you are throwing in your full support and loyalty with that king, come whatever. It was a cultural thing of the time. If you were getting fed from the king's table, then you were actually like covenanting with him to say, I'm pledging my loyalty with you, come hell or high water, no matter what you do, where you do and how you do it, king. You are my king because I'm eating from your table. It was like, this is the long lunch. I'm covenanting with you. And I think at this point, Daniel draws a line and says no. Because to eat with the king would say, I'm absolutely one with the king. At this point, Daniel says, I'm not doing that. Daniel wasn't going to pledge his loyalty here to this pagan godless king who worshipped idols. He said no. Here is God working in Daniel's life at this point with a resolve at this point of compromise to say no. There's another picture of God working. And let's think about this for a moment too as we think about Daniel. It's quite probable that Daniel was maybe 14 to 16 years old 
we sort of get this picture of Daniel. He must have been, you know, some mature adult or something. But don't forget, when they were exiled, they were taken away as youths, not adults. They've chosen the youth. So we're thinking it possibly could have even been down to 13. 13 to 16 years old. I mean, that's an amazing conviction that you see in Daniel as a youth to actually stand up to the king at that point in face of some serious ungodly heat at that time to say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to partake in that. And we know there was some heat there because the eunuch tells Daniel, hey, if you refuse the king's food, my head's going to be in danger because you're refusing the king's order, and probably you're going to follow straight after me. Your head will come off as well. So it wasn't like there was low stakes here. There's high stakes. But here's this 14 to 16-year-old with this godly resolve, says no. Verse 9, though, we do. We see God's favour again being upon Daniel at this time. He gets... uh, Favour or grace with the palace official to get a hearing about how about I devise something else and give us some other food here. God's working in Daniel's life in a really horrendous, difficult situation. Here's the test that Daniel um, puts up, and you're all familiar with this test. Give us vegetables for 10 days, Daniel says. Give me Brussels sprouts and squash, that's all I need. Hopefully there's a bit more of that as well, but give me vegetables for 10 days. And have a look at that at the end and see if we are fit and healthy at the end of those 10 days. Just a little side note here. This isn't a passage of the Bible to commend being a vegetarian. Okay? There's a book come out of it, Daniel's Diet. I mean, I I saw it at Coorong. I never actually bought it, but at that particular time I was living off Maccas and Donuts, so I wasn't going to buy that book of Daniel's Donuts. Uh, Daniel's Donuts... (laughs) Daniel's diet. But this passage is not commending us to be vegetarians. Now, if you are a vegan, if you're a vegetarian, that's great. It's a personal choice and that's all it is. If you're a meat eater, that's great. It's a personal choice. That's all it is. Food neither commends us to God or separates us away from God. And Benny just said amen because Ben's got a smoker at home and he loves to smoke meat. So, <laughs> okay, so it's not a passage for, for, to be a vegan. But if you're a vegan, that's great. Well, they get 10 days down the track and it looks like these boys are in a good paddock. Brussels sprouts and squash. Uh, their guns are bulging and their six-pack is developing real quick. Have I lost anybody? These are supposed to be the guns and the six-pack's sort of up here somewhere. I won't show you that at the moment, though. (laughs) But these guys are beaming with health and vitality. It's working for them. God's working right here with Daniel and his friends in the midst of this ungodly culture. We're not going to eat the king's food. Just give us vegetables and see what happens. And these guys are beaming. Let's follow this on, though, because we're seeing where God's working here in this resolve with Daniel. Again, in this ungodly context and culture, God is here. God graces Daniel and the others with exceptional ability in learning and wisdom. Have a look in verse 17. This is what God does. As for these four youths, so we're still talking about them as youths, 14 to 16 years old. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. This is setting us up for the rest of the book as well, as we'll see dreams and visions come along. Here is God working in the midst of this difficult situation with these 
people. These guys go through the Chaldean University, and here's where they landed by God's grace after the three years of actually immersing themselves in this. They're brought before the king, along with all the best and the brightest of Babylon, the best they could produce. So here's Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, alongside the best of Babylon. And here's what the king says when he actually has this sort of Q&A with all these people before him. He's trying to work out, who do I want in my court? And here it is in verse 20. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired them, so he's got this Q&A session going on, he found them... The them is Daniel, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. He found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. Not just doubly better, ten times better. These guys were standouts, exceptional. How do they get there? God graced them. God was with them. God blessed them with the ability to understand and do these things. God is at work despite the chaos we see around us. God is placing his people, the people he wants, right in the court of the ungodly king of Babylon. God's not dead. God doesn't have his hands tied behind his back. God's working in the chaos. God's plan hasn't unraveled into this tangled mess. Jesus the Messiah is still coming through the people of Judah. God's plans are on track. God's working here in the chaos. Here's some big takeaways for us as we consider here even this early chapter of Daniel. The world we live in isn't a lot unlike Babylon in the sense of there's a momentum that's gaining around us that that is opposing true Christianity. There are so-called Christian churches in quotation marks that are social and liberal and the world's not worried about them. They'll support a whole range of things that the world likes. But true Christianity, the world's gaining momentum to push back and oppose true God-centred Christianity. There's a real sense where the world's trying to reprogram us and the way we think, the way we deal with this world, the way we go through this world. Unfortunately, A lot of our universities are breeding grounds today to produce people with a worldview that is broken and faulty. I've had a couple of our kids go through uni and we've had some really great discussions on their first year and I can't believe the stuff they're getting taught in the first year of university. It's ridiculous. The sexual ethics and the gender ideology they're taught in universities today is outright immoral and anti-God. It's like a reprogramming of our, supposedly, the bright ones going through the university. Our government, it's clamping down on rights and freedom of speech and what we can say. There's some things that I could say from the pulpit that could land me in jail in the current Victorian laws of um, government. There's a clamp down there. And our learning is slowly being eroded, particularly in public schools. It's like there's this reprogramming taking place amongst us. There's a sense that the world's trying to re-educate us. Not in an out-and-out way, but sometimes it appears like that, but in a slow, subtle way, but a consistent way. It just keeps wearing us down. What do we see here with Daniel? Now, admittedly, he was taken as a prisoner, but he really didn't pick up his bat and ball and head for the hills to escape all this. He actually placed himself here in the mix of this culture. 
He put himself there with resolve, with conviction, godly resolve, godly conviction. It's paramount that Christians are trying to fulfill all parts and positions in powers and authorities, wherever it might be. We need Christians in all levels of these spheres of influence and power to be a godly resolve, a godly presence in a difficult part of life to be in there, but to be there for that. And Daniel wasn't going to compromise the worship of the one true God with unwavering loyalty to this pagan king. He had resolved, I'm not going to do that. There's lines that if you cross, I'm not going to go there. And think about what Daniel was facing at this particular time. Everything around Daniel was flowing in the direction of, if you serve the king well, all will go well with you. That's what the whole culture was thinking. A bit like, just follow the king, you'll get a good job, you'll get a good income, you'll get a good house to live in, you'll get a cool wife to have, and everything will go well for you if you just follow the king and you'll have a secure future in Babylon. That was where the culture was going with him. But in the face of that dominant culture that was ungodly, that promised the good life now, Daniel says, no, I'm not going to cross that line. God is working in Daniel's life. Daniel remained faithful to the Lord in this life-threatening circumstance. Why? Because Daniel had a higher king, a greater king, the king, He resolved to follow no matter what the cost would be. He had this picture. He had this worldview. And God honoured that faithfulness. God blessed that resolve. God is using the conviction here of Daniel to ultimately bring about his purposes for the nation of Judah, for the Messiah to ultimately come. Now here's something for us to think about, again, as we're thinking about this character, Daniel, and what God is doing here. I thought about this. What were the inputs into Daniel's life to have this resolve? What were the inputs? What was actually getting put into him so he would have this resolve to know when to say no and the determination to hold on to that and still say no? Where did he get that strength of mind to refuse the king, the highest power and authority, and say no? Let's not forget, though, also, he's a youth, possibly 13, somewhere maybe between 14 and 16 years of age. Where were these inputs coming from that would actually build this resolve into the life of Daniel? Because don't forget, Judah is in a state of decline at the time. The priesthood is corrupt. It's all going pear-shaped. So where would Daniel get this sort of resolve or these inputs into his life? Here's a really good hunch that I think probably was the the reason for it. I reckon Daniel came from a family that was serious about the Lord. Surely at that age, most of the inputs would be from the family. A family that was serious about the Lord, serious in teaching and raising their children to treasure God as their creator and their Lord. Here's what they were told to do. Uh, in raising the kids. Have a look in Deuteronomy chapter 6 with me and you'll see here this picture of what they were to do to raise their family. Here it is, chapter 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That sounds like resolve, doesn't it? It sounds like a deep conviction. It sounds like there's this one unified purpose here. I know what my purpose in life is. It's to love God with all my heart, 
all my soul and all my might. God is supreme. God is first. Everything else pales into insignificance except God. Let's follow on. Verse 6. And these words that I command you, this is Moses talking to the people, and these words that I command you shall be on your heart. Not sitting on the outside, not in a book somewhere. These words shall be inside your heart. These, these words shall be the resolve and conviction that drives you. Not something I just pick up every now and again. It's the resolve. The one God, the true God, love with all my heart, mind, soul and strength. Let's go on to verse 7. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk to them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way. And when you lie down. And when you rise. Take every opportunity you can to speak about God. Every aspect of life, God should be filtering through every conversation. When you see the faults and the flaws of this world, allow God to speak into that situation. Take every opportunity to talk about the God we love above everything else. Verse 8, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. That's the heritage I think Daniel would have got. Would have been so critical to the resolve he had to say no when compromise came. Let the words of God, let the person of God fill your being. And parents and family have an opportunity to actually uh, take that uh, context and that place to do that. Speak of God at every possible opportunity. I'm sure Daniel would have known ultimately there is only one God we must always give our allegiance to. He would have had that well and truly put into his mind. And if someone ever calls me, Daniel says, if someone ever calls me to compromise with the Lord... I'm not doing it because I know there's only one true God. Absolutely, I believe it was taught and modelled by his parents. So parents, take hold of God's word. Teach it, talk about it, speak it as much as you possibly can into the lives of your children. Build gospel resolve into their lives. Take every opportunity to help build those convictions and build that resolve into the family. And not only that... Demonstrate God's word. It's one thing to say it, but if we demonstrate it through radical obedience to the Lord as well, that brings authenticity to what we believe. Mum and dad not only say it, but they believe it. Even if it costs you job opportunities. Even if it costs you sporty success. Or even if it costs you anything else. This is the sort of resolve we help to build in our families so that we don't compromise when things cross with God. We see this beautiful picture here of Daniel right from the get-go. And we're going to see it echoed through this book. He's not going to compromise when people cross the line with God. And what does God do? God blesses that faithfulness. Blesses that faithfulness with deeper experience of understanding who God is through his strength and his joy flowing through Daniel's life. And we too can experience that as well when we don't compromise. We take hold of what God's given to us and we say, no, not going to do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today as we just set the scene for Daniel and we see your hand at work in the life of Daniel right from the outset. Lord, Judah is smashed. 
The place has been levelled. It's just a smoking ruin. Look, people would be thinking, God, you've lost. God, you're dead. God, you're powerless. The Babylonian gods are stronger, they are bigger, they are mightier. But Father, we see right from the outset, you are in control. You are sovereign. You're working in the lives of your people and you're building still your plans and unfolding your plans before us. Father, we thank you for the resolve that you gave to Daniel. We thank you, Lord, for the parents and the family that built into Daniel these convictions. Uh, Lord, today I pray, please, would you help us to take hold of what you've given to us to build those same convictions and same resolve. Help us to say no with wisdom and discernment on when to say no, Lord. But then when that point comes, help us with that strength to say no. Father, we thank you for the good things we're going to see in Daniel and pray you bless that to us today. And we ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. We hope you found today's talk challenging and fruitful. Don't hesitate to get in touch by visiting our website or sending us an email. But we'd love for you to join us in person as well.